Anyway, if you've got a Bible, let's turn to John 21. John chapter 21. And uh, where shall we start? Let's start at verse 13. John 21. The, Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and so with the fish. I love that. You could preach a whole sermon on that, a whole week of sermons. Jesus came. Thank God Jesus came. What would we be without him? But Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and so with the fish. This is, was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. And when they'd finished their breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. The second time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly I say to you, when you were young, you girded yourself and walked where you would. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish to go. This he said to show by what death Peter was to glorify God. And after this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the following them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, the one who'd laid close to his breast at supper and had said, Lord, what is that going to be? Who's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about him? And Jesus said, none of your business. Great. When I was uh, at theological cemetery training for the ministry, the very first essay uh, that I had to do was on this passage. And it was set to us in our New Testament Greek class by um, a Greek tutor. She was called Margaret Embry. She was like a female Yoder. She was about that tall. And she would just point at you and you'd have a pat and say, translate. And you'd have a panic attack, you know, because you didn't know Greek or out like that. But um, she said us this as a first essay to do a kind of careful analysis, tic-tacking through the text and, um, and paying particular attention to the kind of pairings that are there in the Greek and the subtle nuances. And, and anyway, really getting stuck into the old Greek of it. And you'll know that there are pairings between sheep and lambs and... Um, between two different words for knowing in the Greek and between feeding and tending and between love. And you'll know that Jesus asks the question using the agape word group. That's the kind of all singing, all dancing, slay a dragon for your beloved kind of love, the full wallop love. And um, Peter responds with a lesser love, the phileo love, the brotherly love, the family love. And so we, we all wrote our essays on that. And uh, I think I got so bogged down, I didn't get a very good mark. She said, too preachy. 
I remember it was my first essay. I thought, that's the job, isn't it? She said, no, it's not the job. Too preachy. Um, and I think I got so bogged down in the subtleties of the Greek text that I missed the point. And I think that wise old Greek tutor was trying to teach us then from this passage about what it meant to be a true follower of Jesus. I think if we want to understand the nature of Christian discipleship and indeed leadership, we find it here in this passage. And it tells us about the one we're going to serve. And it tells us about the basis on which we serve. This is one of those beautiful passages that puts Jesus, his nature and his character and his goodness up front, up close and center. And I want to just highlight two questions, if you like, or frame uh, our study of it with two questions. And the first one is, it's quite simple, do you love Jesus? Because that's the question that turns up three times. You'll know that in Hebrew, uh, Hebrew idiom, if you say something three times, you're saying it in the most, in its fullest, per, most perfect form. So when I, I, Isaiah saw the Lord, the angels cry, holy, holy, holy. You, can't, you would never add a fourth to it because holy is like the definitive of holiness. And here the question is asked three times, do you love me, do you love me, do you love me? And he's restored three times, feed, ten, feed. The other day, uh, last term in our church, three weeks running, we had students come to faith. Only one of them had any religious background. Um, and the other two, no church whatsoever. All of them were independently drawn to come to church and got saved that Sunday. All three were called Grace. Three weeks running. And, you know, if you like a little bit of Hebrew idiom, you'd appreciate that. Grace, grace, grace. It was beautiful. Anyway, in this passage, the resurrected Jesus is confronting Peter's denial. And Jesus is giving Peter an opportunity to undo and to recant and repent and be set free from his former threefold denial. Jesus doesn't want failure to be the mark of Peter's future. He wants his forgiveness to be the mark of his ministry. And Peter, uh, and Jesus doesn't want Peter living in the past. He wants to sort out the past so he can live in the future. So often some of us are trapped in the past. And the Lord needs to heal us and deal with us so that we can serve him, receive all that he's got for us, and do all that he wants us to do. Anyway, Jesus could have started again. He could have found another leader. He'd said he was going to build his church on Peter, but Peter had blown it. Peter had blown it big time. He had denied Jesus three times. Perfectly, fully, unequivocally. No going back from the three. And yet, the Lord wants to restore him. Some while ago, I was doing a, a thing for the vineyard, vineyard pastors. And um, just before I went on to speak, I'd just been to the loo. Not that you need to know that, but I went to the loo before I spoke. You know what I mean? And um, I, it was after breakfast. I hope this isn't offensive. Number twos. And... Um, uh, as I was tidying myself up, I dropped my signet ring in the loo. Oh, my gosh, what are you doing with that? And I jumped, and I thought, oh, no. I couldn't see it in the room. I thought, 
And now what do we do? And so I was like confronted with the choice. I could flush it away or I could go in after it. And what do you, do? I mean, what would you do? Exactly. It was special. My missus bought it, so I went in after it. And, you know, anyway, I found it. And then what do you do? You've got to get your kit on, and you've got to open the door, and there's like 20 vineyard pastors staring at you. Hi. Just wash my hands, guys. Hi. You know, and clean my hands. And, um, and I walked out, you know, and as I walked out, the Lord spoke to me. And he said uh, from Haggai 2, that says that God will place us like a signet ring on his finger. He says, because I have chosen you. God could have flushed Peter away. God could have said, you stink, mate. You're out of here. Your, your history, you're gone. I'll find another. I can, I can create the, word of the wor world of the word. I can find another one of you. But that isn't his way. Because he's the grace God. And he's the one who preeminently, of course, at the cross reaches into the filth of our life. Not to judge us and punish us, but to take the judgment and the punishment we deserved. And to cleanse us and to put us to work make us like a signet on his finger because he's chosen us so the Lord wants to restore Peter Peter denies Jesus at a charcoal fire Jesus here the only other time we find that word mentioned is in this text here he is at a charcoal fire well, Peter's senses and his memory will have been heightened and he will have been taken back at that breakfast with that smell of burning charcoal back in his memory to those days before when he had let the Lord down. The Lord's just doing some surgery here. He's going deep. And then he says, you come with me, mate. We're going for a walk. And he walks down the beach and he has a pri private conversation with him. I've celebrated communion on the beach that they think this happened at. It's reasonable guess that it was there very sacred very special place for me and the Lord just seeks to restore him but to restore him he's got to deal with the past and so he says Simon do you love me not why did you let me down I mean he knows why he's weak he's pathetic he was a coward but do you love me agapetos mu and Peter responds with the lesser love philo I don't love you like that incidentally I've said a few times in the <laughs> calling you Saint Dionysus, but you're Saint Dion Dionysus, because you don't want to be Saint Dionysus, who is a real wicked pagan god. Now, let's get back to the text. Greek, it's subtleties, but they do matter. Um, Agapeta, do you love me like this? Peter says, No, I don't. I love you like that. I love you like a brother, love your family, love, love you like a friend. Of course, I don't love you like that because that love, agapetos mu, that is the love that lays down its life for his friend. And I haven't done that. I denied my friend while you were dying for your friends. No, I don't love you like that. I love you like that. And Jesus says, that will do. Tend the lambs. You get the job. And then Jesus asks him again. And at that first time, that first denial, the stake in his soul from that first denial is taken out. Asks him again, Agapetos me, do you love me like that? No, I love you like that. And that'll do, feed the sheep. And then he asks him a third time, the penny drops at the third. Oh, the third. Ouch. 
That one's in deep. Do you love me? Lord, you know everything. And you know I do. But I've been weak and I've failed and I've let you down. But I love you. And Jesus says, that'll do. And Peter's threefold denial, it's not the last word. And God makes space for grace. Because that's what he's like. This tells us in the most amazing way what Jesus whom we serve is like. He is gracious and forgiving and restoring. And Peter's never going to measure up to that love. He hasn't so far. But Jesus is giving him love. And a threefold expression of devotion is then met with a threefold commission. Love covers a multitude of sins. I mean, Christ's love for us covers our sin through his death, and our love for him, as it were, brings us to that place where our sin is covered. It's an amazing question. Do you love me? You see, Christ didn't redeem us to be workers. Christ redeems us to be lovers. And love goes to hell and back to win lovers. The Lord's got loads of servants. They're called angels. They're not lovers. Jesus never asked the angels, do you love me? No, they work for him. He asks us, will we of our own volition and freedom and will say yes to him and love him? Old Leon Morris, a great New Testament scholar, once wrote, loving Jesus is the fundamental qualification for service. Other qualities may be desirable, but love is indispensable. You know, decades ago when I was going forward for ministry, I, I had more interviews than anyone uh, to, to see if I could be ordained because they'd never ordained a butcher before. They didn't know what to do with me from the West Country. And uh, I had to go and visit Captain this and Lady this and all these grandees who were just, they just didn't know what to do with me. And they asked me all these questions, you know, like, you know, what is your Myers-Briggs psychological profile, you know? And how would you work in a team according to sort of Belbin analysis and all of those sort of questions? Have you had an education? No, you know I haven't. I left school without one, you know? And, and all of this sort of thing. They asked me all these questions. Do you look good in a cassock? I said, I'm sure, but I don't never try. But <laughs> no one ever asked, do you love the Lord Jesus? No one. No one. I always ask everyone at every interview. I, I, we're always interviewing people at our church, you know, um, for different jobs. That's because some of them don't stay around long. But I say, do you love the Lord Jesus? In fact, I, what I said, what do you think of the Lord Jesus? Or why do you love him? Because that's what matters. And the rest is the detail. The rest works out from it. The rest is just a trajectory from that. Do you love me? The most effective disciple, the most effective apostle, the most effective Christian is not the most educated, not the most gifted, but the most passionate about Jesus. They're the ones who are attractive. They're the ones who draw people closer to Jesus because people can see that they're ablaze with the love of Christ. In Donald Miller's spiritual journaling book, uh, Blue Like Jazz, anyone read that? It's, it's a good book. He tells of a friend of his called Alan, I think it's Alan Hirsch, 
who was researching successful Christian leadership and ministry. And uh, Alan traveled across America visiting all these uh, sort of leaders and asking them questions. And he went to this one chap who um, was called Bill Bright. Some of you may have heard of him, one of the most influential Christian leaders of the 20th century. He founded Campus Crusade. They've got 25,000 missionaries in the field in 200 countries. They put together the Jesus movie, the most watched movie in the history of movies, 200 languages, trans and all of that. Anyway, Alan says he went into this room. He says it was a big office, a big kind of American business style, big office, and there was a big desk. Behind the big desk, there's this big man, Big Bill Bright, BBB. And uh, he asked all these questions. And then finally he says, what does Jesus mean to you? And Bill Bright just began crying. He just couldn't put into words what Jesus meant to him. And... Donald Miller comments. He says he sat there in a big chair behind a big desk and wept. And old Miller comments, when Alan told me the story, I wondered what it was like to love Jesus that way, to cry at the very mention of the name Jesus. And I knew then I would like to know Jesus like that. Church can do your head in. I mean, it really can. But Jesus, when he's front and center, when he's the all-consuming passion in our lives, we can take anything. And here's the amazing thing. Jesus wants us to know him like that. Because that's the question Jesus asks. And that's the answer he's soliciting. Simon, do you love me? You know, the first commandment is not a prohibition. It tells us, Jesus said, the, the first and greatest commandment is this, what? Give a tithe, work hard, flog your send to, den, to death. No. Love God. How much? How much should we love him? With all. <laughs> your heart, your soul, and your mind, and your strength, depending which translation. You love God with everything. And the second one's like it, named that you love your neighbor as yourself. You know, if you love God, you'll love your neighbor. That's how it works. Love God. Luther said that if that's the greatest commandment, the greatest sin is not loving God. We have a kind of hierarchy of sin, a kind of ontology of sin. The greatest sin is not being all out for God, not loving him. And he welcomes and invites our love. You know, he doesn't make us automatons. We're not computers. He hasn't programmed us to respond in a certain way. He made us in, in his image, and he's given us free will, and we can exercise that and say yes or no to him, to withhold love or to give love. He wants us to love him freely. He loves us freely from all eternity, but we're given the choice. Will we love him back? Peter let the Lord down. But Jesus said, well, let's just get to the heart of the matter. Do you love me? Because if you love me, we can go forward. Albert Camus, I quoted him this morning. Here, we got him again. He says, the love, he's not my man at every point, by the way, but he is interesting. 
He says the love of God is a hard love. It demands everything. And Peter, after the third time, Jesus says, yeah. And I tell you that when you were young, you, you know, you were dressed and so on, but now when you're old, you're going to be tied up and that way you don't want to go. And Peter will prove that he loves the Lord, that his love had moved from phileo to agape, that it had moved up because he was willing to lay down his life for the Lord who laid down his life for him. But this is the first question. Do you love the Lord? It's easy for me. To, you know, I read that and I see my name. I couldn't believe it when I first started reading this book. I thought, I'm all over the place here. Simon. <laughs> Simon, do you love me? I, now, I can, when I read that, I, I, it speaks to me. But you've got to put your name in there. And say, you know, Andrew, do you love me? Kevin, do you love me? Stacy, do you love me? Pippa, do you love me? Put your name in there and let the Lord ask you that question. Go back from this wonderful church house party loving him more. Loving him more. Not necessarily signing up, no disrespect to the vicars who may have a list out there, but signing up for some other ministry, but love him more. When you love him, you will serve him, by the way, but love him more. Put love first. Make love the priority. Do you love me? Was there ever a time when you loved him more? Was there ever a time when he was nearer to you and dearer to you? It's so easy. You know, just like in a, a relationship, in, in a marriage, love can grow cold. Just the pressure of life and this and that can come in and can just cool that love and it happens with God you know you could have been full on for him and all in and all out for him when you were at uni but then work getting up at five o'clock getting on a tube after a tube getting yourself covered in soot walking down the road in London going to the office I mean at least now you can do it on own you know on one day a week I only go in one day a week and um, but but stuff Doing life, building the career and paying the mortgage. and It can be wearing and taxing. And actually it can squeeze the love of God from us. It's not that we are in rebellion or sin. Or, it's just that it's just love's fizzled. And we need to sizzle, not to have it fizzle. I need to remember that. It's quite good. I've never said that. <laughs> Fizzle, not sizzle. Um, sorry. I used to sell pork pies, and I had to find clever ways of doing it. But that's the... <laughs> You've got to love him. And so he comes to us by his spirit, comes to us today while we're here. He said, do you love me? Will you love me? The second question. We've only got two. Do you know Jesus loves you? Well, where is that in the text? Well, let's drop down here to uh, verse 20. Peter turned and saw, following them, the disciple whom Jesus loved. The one who laid close to his breast at the last supper and said, Lord, who's going to betray you? And when Peter saw him, he said, what about him? 
The thing is, our love for Jesus is always a response to his love for us. His love is not conditional on our love. Our love is a response to his a priori love. He loved us first. That's what St. John says, and that's what Scripture tells us. God loved us first. A philosopher once wrote this, If I rise at dawn, the very second my soul awakens and turns to you in prayer, you've already beat me to it. You've already turned to me in love. He's already there. Love takes the initiative. Love leads. Why does he make the universe? Why does he create this funny little planet spinning around? The sun on its own axis. Uh, in time and space. Why has he done it? Was he bored? I mean, was God bored? So what are we going to do tomorrow? I don't know. It's boring, isn't it? In fact, what is tomorrow? There is no time in eternity. Um, what are we going to do? Well, should we make something? Yeah, let's have a go. No, the Trinity... That the Trinity was so pregnant and pulsing with love. They said, we've got to love someone. We've got to love someone. What are we going to do? Father, loving the Son, loving the Spirit, loving the Father, loving the Son, say, let's create something in our own image that we can love. Okay, well, let's configure something in, something in time and space, a place, and we'll make someone in our image. We'll put them in paradise. That's what Eden means. We'll put them in a paradise. It means walled garden. And we'll come and love them, and we'll come in the cool of the day when it's not too hot. It's just a nice breeze, and we'll come, and we'll love them. And the great work of the demonic was to come between us and the love of God. And Adam and Eve sinned. They are aware of their nakedness. Their glory dissipates. They hide behind a bush. They hide behind a covering of their own making. And God comes to them. Jesus came. And in the cool of the day, God came to them, as he always did. And he says, Adam, where are you? Do you think God didn't know? Of course he knew. But it's a, cross of, uh, it's a cry of his loss and dereliction. That God mourned this. Adam and Eve felt guilty, but God was devastated. Because that which he created to love had pulled away from it. Anyway, how do we know he loves us? Creation tells us. This exists. The whole of creation exists. Not simply as an expression of God's creative power, although it does that, Romans 1, 18 to 25. It exists as the context. The red carpet rolled out in eternity for a lover's tryst between us and God. That's why we're he loves us. He saw us from afar, and he loved us. What does Jesus see from the cross? You and me in love. Come on down. Come on down if you think you're the Messiah. Come on. He says, no, love holds him there. And he saw it through to the bitter end because he loved us because he wanted us back. Ever since Eden, he's been wanting us back. He chased us through the corridors of history trying to woo us to himself. He loved us. Anyway, verse 20. Peter turns and saw, following them, the disciple whom Jesus loved. This was the one who leaned on the breast of Jesus at supper and said, who's going to betray you? Now, why is that even in there? I mean, 
the sovereignty of God and the action of his spirit working through John. But who's, who's John writing about? He's writing about himself. I mean, some scholars want to write a PhD to justify their PhD saying it wasn't John. But it's John. And he's writing about himself. And he's writing himself into the story. He's always putting himself in the story. He's always putting himself there. Six times in this letter, he calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. The disciple whom Jesus loved. This was the one who leant against Jesus' breast on the last night that he was betrayed and said, who's going to betray you? Not me. I've got to be honest. For years, even when I was working as a chaplain in Oxford, I, I, I didn't quite know what was going on, but that annoyed me. I thought, who is this sappy, weedy John? What is all this leaning on the beloved? we got work to do, mate. You know, what are you doing there? And why are you writing yourself in the story? Why, why are you walking? Peter's having soul. I identify with Peter. Why? Peter's having soul surgery on the beach, and you're following behind. What are you doing? Step off. You know what I mean? Clear off, nosy puck, and all of that stuff. I would just find. I don't know if you've ever felt that. But you read bits of scripture and they just kind of stick a bit. And they're uncomfortable. And I think what was going on was that I felt it implied a favoritism. That maybe it suggested that Jesus has his favorites. He has his golden boys and girls. And I want one of them. I always felt a bit different, I always felt on the outside looking in, I didn't belong, especially once they ordained me. I thought it was just a kind of token thing. And, and I just struggled. And this somehow seemed to highlight that for me, that Jesus had favorites and he was his favorite. And then one day I'm reading this and the Lord spoke to me. I could feel that rising up. And the Lord said, I don't love John any more than I love you. The difference is he knows it. The difference is he knows it. Everyone's leaving. Is there somewhere better to be? Oh, classic. Of course, I remember them days. <laughs> anyway, I don't love John any more than I love you. The difference is he knows it. And then the Lord took me to... One John, and three times there, John writes to the church, dearly beloved, dearly beloved, dearly beloved. The NIV translates it as dear friends, but that would be philatoi, not agapetoi. The translators have got it wrong. They've translated it as dear friends, but John knew that he was beloved, and he wasn't just being arrogant, he had assurance. And he was, he was simply saying, I'm loved. Not I'm loved more than you, but I am loved by the true and living God. And you're loved. That really broke me. I remember where I was. I remember when it was. I remember how it was when I met the Lord and I really saw that he loved me. He can't love us anymore. He loved us says Tom Torrance, more than he loves himself because he's willing to die for us. He's willing to give up himself and endure great scorn and pain 
the son separated from his father. It goes to hell and back. He loves us more than himself. He loves us to the point of death so that we could be in a relationship with him. The Lord said, John didn't lean on my chest because he was the only one who could. It's because he knew he could. And the interesting thing is that later in the narrative, the one who leans is the one who's left standing. The first one leaning is the last one standing. And at the foot of the cross, where are the other disciples? They're not there. But at the foot of the cross is John and Mary, Christ's mother. And Jesus says, Mom, this is your son. And John this is your mum. And he entrusts his mum to John. He's the lover. But John knew he was loved. First one leaning, last one standing. And he can't love us anymore. And everything he ever did was motivated by love. And that love bids us welcome. That love invites us to come and be loved. There is an objectivity to his love, and that is Calvary. How do we know he loves us? Because he dies for us. Greater love hath no man than this, than he laid down his life for his friends. God calls us his friends and lays down his life for us. There, in geography and in history, in that objectivity of the cross, the loveliest life the world has ever seen, nailed against a tree, Love running red. He loves us to death. He loves you. And how do we get to know this love? That's objective. We can see it. We can read it. We can believe it. But how do I get to feel it? Because love is also a feeling. How do I get to really know that? Not just believe in it, but know it and experience it. Well, that's why I'm a charismatic I'm a charismatic because I need his love gifts in my life. And it's the Spirit of God who sheds abroad the love of God in our hearts. It's the Spirit of God. We need his Spirit for so many things, to be conformed into his likeness, to be empowered for his service, to exercise gifts, to build up the body, etc., etc., etc. But preeminently, we need the Spirit of God to fill us with his love and to help us love him back. That spirit gives us new birth. What's the point of new birth if you can't be loved by God? It's not just transactional so we can escape hell. It's so that we can enter into love with the beloved. And love bids us welcome. And it's love that sustains us. And it's love that motivates us in our ministry. I'm going to finish with a prayer. I've used up my time. This is a prayer, and then we're going to worship. Yes. It's a prayer from my best friend. He wrote it just before he died of COVID last Christmas. It's called Big Dave White, Canon David White. And I love that man, and I miss him greatly. But he taught me about the love of God because he lived in it. And I found this thing he had just written. Just a prayer he'd written, just for him. He never knew I was going to read it and say it. He says this, I want to lose my heart to Christ 
day after day after day. I figure I was created to be engrossed by him. I reckon he wants me to be enamored and thrilled by him, who he is no less than what he does. And what would it be like to be utterly enthralled by the immensities of his character or enraptured by his ways? I want to be excited by Jesus and held in worshipful awe before his face. And I want to be astounded and absorbed by the depths of wisdom and the love that I find in him. And actually he was. And now really is. But by the Spirit, now, even before we get to be with him forever, when we go to be with him or he comes and gets us, we can know something of that divine and eternal love in our lives. And when we know it, then we can love him back. And then the overflow of that love, his love for me, my love for him, overflows into my loving those who might not be very lovely, but loving in service. Amen? Amen. Let's stand. We're going to worship.